Hello. Um, my voice sounded weird a couple weeks ago because of screaming from being at a summer camp thing for queer women, which is a real thing. Um, and now it sounds weird again because uh, I was home this past weekend because uh, Mei Mei, who I don't know if you guys know, was my grandmother. Um, she died uh, kind of unexpectedly. And, um, she was this, like, very fashionable sort of, like, matriarch of the family who was very funny and sassy and sort of Lucille Bluth-esque and, uh, almost like that part in Arrested Development when Lucille Bluth is like, how much could a banana cost? Ten dollars? Not that she didn't know. I mean, she survived the Holocaust and moved here as an immigrant running from World War II and from concentration camps. And and she came here and started over um, and had a lot of really terrible experiences in her life. But then that sort of led to her being a connoisseur of the finer things, (laughs) which makes sense because I think when you have gone through a lot of trauma, sometimes you just want to surround yourself with nice art. So anyway, we went home and... um, she has a lot of a house full of stuff that's like very her, like nice clothes and sculptures. And she had just two weeks before reordered all of her makeup and face creams <laughs> at 91 years old. And so, yeah, so she, I mean, I, I talk, I guess I haven't talked about it on the show that much that she was sort of like the set the money tone essentially for everybody and was very confident in taking care of herself and funny. Like when I, I was interviewing her for the the book and and I asked her why in her nineties, she kept spending money on makeup and lotions and creams and clothes and high heels and all that. And not, and expecting her to sort of be like, give me some reason. Right. But she just went, Oh, I'm very vain. And that was the end of it. <laughs> so, so then, so then now, right. So the episodes are planned out. So now we have this episode and, um, I, and I was supposed to like record the, like audio for it or whatever. Um, you know, the, the parts in between the interviews, you guys get it. You've heard the show. Um, so, we were supposed to record that last week. We couldn't because I had to go home. Um, so now we just like have it and I'm recording it sort of last minute. Um, so that's probably why my voice sounds weird. Uh, and it's interesting because this episode's about economic mobility and sort of, a, I guess, a loose tie, you know, for like someone who definitely embodied that coming from to like torture camps essentially to owning antiques and getting fake nails put on with jewels and owning like Cartier watches and stuff, which I feel like I used to hate when I was a kid, but you can't begrudge her because I think she earned it. Basically we've talked a lot about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And we've had people on the show who, you know, say that this is sort of a physical impossibility, mostly because the phrase pull yourself up by your bootstraps actually was meant to mean an impossible thing because you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Think about it. So we wanted to talk this week about the chance that children have to do better than their parents economically, which is also interesting because Maymay was an immigrant which is a a very fraught thing that's going on right now. And um, she came here as a refugee, escaping uh, a terrible situation in her home country. And she wanted her children, right, which a lot of people, most people do, to sort of get better jobs or make more money or move up. And so this episode, we're going to find out how that's actually playing out right now in this country. And now an ad break, which is very tonally appropriate.
Okay, so we're back. Um, I'm sure that ad break was completely the same as what came before it. I'm talking to Tenvi Misra. Tenvi is a journalist at City Lab where she writes about inequality, immigration, and housing. Very timely. She's been covering economic mobility and how America's doing with it these days. And obviously, like we've said, it's not great. Um, so it's pretty bleak. Um, <laughs> well, let me walk that back. I, I will say it's definitely much less promising than we think it is. And there's been some really groundbreaking research done on the subject uh, recently by a couple of economists, Raj Chetty, who's now at Stanford, and Thalian Hendren, who's at mm-hmm. Harvard. And they have this project that they call the Equality to Opportunity Project, in which they've been sort of slicing and dicing data sets to come up with new insights about what um, economic mobility really looks like in the country. And, you know, one of the things that they recently measured is this um, is something called absolute income mobility, which is basically the fraction of kids who earned more than their parents at a certain given period mm-hmm. of time, right? So what they did was they compared kids who were born in the 40s mm-hmm. with a cohort of kids that was born in the 80s. So those are people who would be like around my age now, right? So around 28, 29, maybe a little bit older yeah. than that. Uh, and what they realized was that this measure that they were looking at, um, absolute income mobility, that was basically 50%. So it was only 50% of the kids born in the 80s were able to do better than their parents. So what that means is uh, you have, it's basically a coin to us. Whether you're going to be able to do well in life compared to your parents uh, is basically a coin to us. And one thing that's really important to note here is that this was regardless of income spectrum. So it it was, it did not depend on how rich and or poor your parents were to begin with. So in other words, this sort of affects everyone. Everyone is more stagnant today than they were about 40 or 50 years back. And like what has changed that through generations? I have some ideas, but what what uh, what has what has <laughs> changed from the 40s to the 80s? So when we think about it, you know, you have this 50-50 split now where only 50% um, of the kids will do mm-hmm. better and you don't know, you know, what that 50% is, obviously. Back in the 1940s cohort, that was 92%. So you can see the, you, you know, I just wanted to lay out the split, yeah. first of all. That's like a huge uh, drop, right? So... Going back now to your question, like what happened during this time? Um, there's two explanations for that. One is, all right, so you have, you know, there was really strong post-war economic growth at that time. It benefited everyone. It was great. The proverbial pie got bigger. And that just did not happen to the same extent with the cohort of kids that came afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's one theory. The other theory is that as, you know, those decades sort of went by, the pie that we're talking about actually was not distributed in the same way. So these guys that I was talking about, these economists, uh, tested both those theories, and they found that the second one, the fact that inequality is actually getting much worse, was a huge determinant, a huge reason for this trend. So I want to highlight one statistic that like really blows my mind, um, which is that if the pie had been proportioned the way that it was back in the 1940s, mm-hmm. for the kids who were born in the 1980s, Absolute income mobility, which is what we were talking about earlier, would have leapt up to 80%. Wow. So that's crazy, right? Like that distribution, that like sort of one little tweak Mm -hmm. um, in the way that things were would have closed 71% of that gap between those two points in like sort of the timeline of the country. Yeah. So on that note, who, who is the most economically mobile and who is the least? It's really been earth-shattering, I would say, like in terms of, you know, sort of the body of research on, um, on this topic. Um, and it, it sort of shows you that um, black men have sort of been worst off on this front, on this particular measure. Mm-hmm. What they found in the most recent study was that even when, you know, you're looking at this cohort of children, and even if they grow up right next to each other, even if they have the same income, even if or their parents have the same income, yeah. um, even if they have the same family structure. So, you know, they both, you know, um, have uh, parents who are not divorced or you know, not single parents, similar education levels, similar levels of accumulated wealth. All of these things did not change the fact that in 99 percent of America, white boys um, fared much better in terms of economic mobility than black boys. Wow. And the research was careful about this, too. Like, that's not to say that black women did not face Mm -hmm. their own sort of um, 
repercussions of um, that sort of specific racial, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, I would say just straight up racism in different ways. But in this particular measure, this was the most stark finding. Wow. Well, did it give like specific reasons why? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, and again, like I would say that uh, the authors are very careful to make sure that people don't take away sort of, you know, um, conflate causality and correlation and all of that. But it did seem that through the process of elimination, um, you know, and sort of looking at sort of broader themes of what's going on sociologically in in these communities, there seemed to be a suggestion that things like... um, early age policing, mm-hmm. you know, sort of um, disproportionate punishment uh, at even like just the school level criminalization at, you know, whenever you sort of go out into the, uh, into the public, um, you know, even in these neighborhoods that don't have a, like high crime, they're, they're pretty nice neighborhoods with opportunity. Like you don't really escape the idea or the stereotype that people have perhaps mm-hmm. of who a, a black man or a black boy yeah. is. And that comes with really significant repercussions for that person's economic future, essentially. So it was really stark, the finding that, you know, you could have everything else be equal. And even if you were really rich, that there's a much higher likelihood that black men would actually get poorer as they got, you know, started earning and got older, as opposed to like staying the same level or becoming richer. So it's kind of like really... um, gives you a sense of the people who've sort of borne the brunt of those economic policies and tax policies and sort of the culture mm-hmm. of uh, um, thinking about poverty that we uh, and those conversations that we've had in the country Well, over all these years. So the way that we measure economic mobility is just uh, that you make more than your parents did. And, and is that this thing that people believe in because... They're give like it's that thing of oh we want to give you the opportunities that we didn't have is that the measurement? There's two broad ways of measuring economic mobility, right? So it falls into two camps, and then you know all the smarter people do like all of their math to it, and I don't really know much about that. But what I will say is it's two things. One thing is what you mentioned, which is that you sort of compare how you're doing compared to what your parents were doing, you know, around the same yeah. age. So that's one aspect of it. And I think that really speaks to what we were talking about before, which is this concept that, you know, you come to the country, you do the best you can for your children with the hopes that, you know, uh, this is very much about, for example, the immigrant narrative, right? So you come into this country, you work really hard, you sacrifice for your kids, and they will, you know, do much better than you, right? Um, That is one sort of measure looking at it. And then the other measure is like, how do you do compared to yourself? You know, for example, at the beginning of your career, to, you know, the middle of your career or to the end of the, you know, so it's it's sort of comparing, um, it depends on who you compare and in what way. Yeah, so how important is where you live to economic mobility? Like, where is the most possible and where is it almost impossible? Oh, okay. So this is the other part of all of this research that is especially interesting to me because I write about cities, but also is, I think, something that, might really surprise people, which is that location matters. Yeah, Not just the rates of economic mobility, so like who gets to escape poverty, who gets to do better than their parents, um, but actually the change in economic mobility over time is very much dependent on where you live. Yeah. So, you know, the earliest piece of research that these guys, uh, uh, Chetty and Hendren came up with, um, they found that Areas like Boston or San Jose, um, these cities tended to do much better than um, sort of uh, the post-industrial cities in the Midwest, right? So you had very different odds of being able to, uh, you know, climb up the economic ladder, so as to say, if you were in one place versus the other. More recent research that they've done has shown, has really like supported that and like they've actually shown that the longer time kids have spent in neighborhoods, uh, in certain types of neighborhoods, their chances get cut with like every year that they live in the neighborhood. So basically what that means is the exposure to that neighborhood, certain types of neighborhoods really matters. Um, the next natural logical question would be, well, what what is different about these neighbors, mm-hmm, neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to other neighborhoods. What these guys found was there are certain things that keep coming up. One is residential segregation. 
which has really been coded into the DNA of like every city in America. Mm-hmm. And and not just like mm, I think this thing just like sort of organically happened, right? This these were things that were very intentional, yeah. created by zoning policy, created by redlining. And like every level of government, there was, you know, the federal government subsidized the white suburbs and like made sure that certain people, uh, people of color, specifically African-Americans and various immigrants would stay in certain neighborhoods and those neighborhoods would not get investment, would not get home loans and so on and so forth. Right. So so that's one big uh, correlation that they found. Um, the other things that they found were things like. Things what you'd imagine, really. It's very intuitive. So, you know, they found things like inequality. They found, like, things like social capital, right? So your networks and your community. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the people who can set you up with the jobs and, you know, get you that interview or get you into school, right? Um, and then family structure. So, you know, the fraction of single parents in a certain neighborhood or uh, a certain environment did have a, uh, effects on the kids growing up in those environments. So the whole idea here is that there are, attributes about certain neighborhoods that are trapping people in poverty and keeping them there for generations. Yeah. Whereas in other neighborhoods, you could be born somewhere, but you can actually pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. It's also, you mentioned a little bit that it's like, it's like the statistics are such that it's almost luck, right? Like luck plays into it a lot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you could be talented, but you need a multitude of things to happen. Right. And I think that goes against the idea that going back to that narrative, right, that it doesn't matter what your luck is. It doesn't matter the hand you've been dealt, but that if you really work hard, you could make it. And sure, in a couple of cases that are pretty well, um, you know, that I think we as a society like to put up on pedestals. Sure, for those few people it did. But as a system, that doesn't work. Right. So when you really look at the numbers, that's not true on the ground that you actually need a lot of support and a lot of it's actually luck that got you there. And then really, if you get out of those situations, that's luck as well. You know, it it may be the case that you're trying really hard and like you still may not be able to change those circumstances. I don't know. I mean, this whole idea of the American dream is so ingrained in us and it is so individualistic. Like, I even, you know, have people that have a problem with this podcast because I discuss systemic issues and they are so invested in the idea of, no, I am able to make things better for myself. And you can, Mm -hmm. you can, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not bad to consider the other factors and and just be aware of them. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have to let them beat you down, but like, is the American dream just all false advertising or is, is it worth having around just as like inspiration I don't know because then part of me is like well then it affects people's mental health poorly to think that they're not getting something just because they're like quote-unquote not good enough it's so complicated so I would say one thing to your previous one which I think is it's extremely interesting and I think very important to bring up in this discussion is this is the agency of the people who are the quote-unquote um, have-nots in this situation, right? So I don't want to say, for example, that, oh, this research shows that these guys just have no choice right, in their right. life and they're just sort of these, you know, and that's not true. I, I think a lot of people who are born into poverty and who are, you know, fighting the odds, so as to say, um, have been doing whatever they can. Um, but the thing is, I think what gets lost in the discussion is like really putting that in context of the structural factors that are still holding them down and comparing them to the structural factors that are elevating other folks, right? And that, again, comes back to what you just said, which is that 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 depends on where you were born and like what the color of your skin was and things like that that are not in your control. So I think it, it's it's a complicated discussion that needs a little bit more nuance and um, perhaps like really going around in those circles a couple of times before we come to like conclusions mm-hmm. about it. And I think I would say to your question about like, so is this just like false advertising or is this? I think that it is important to know the limits of that dream. Um, important to know why it's not actually happening but then important once we know all of those things to aspire to like create a system where that is possible for everyone so economic mobility is harder for people today than it was for people in my parents generation In the best of circumstances, my fellow young people, yes, I'm very young, are much less likely to surpass our parents' rung in the socioeconomic ladder. 
but I want to focus on what happens in the circumstances that aren't the best because these things vary wildly from a regional standpoint. And the American South is one of the worst. And I'm very interested, actually, in poverty in the American South because it's got such a media narrative. Some of the reasons for the failing grade are rooted in how that narrative is told over generations by the government, by the media, society in general. Alana Samuels, a staff writer at The Atlantic, has looked at how this plays out in big cities in the South, specifically like Charlotte, North Carolina. It's interesting because if you look at the South broadly, um, you know, they kind of color code their maps and, mm-hmm. and kind of red is where it's hard to get ahead. And it's just like all all red in the South. Um, but, you know, they, they people talk about a few different things. Um, one is kind of concentrated poverty. So places like Charlotte have a lot of concentrated poverty, which means that people who live in poverty are also surrounded by other people living in poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can be really hard to access some of the networks and kind of um, opportunities that you might see other, you know, if if you live in a more integrated place like, say, New York City. Um, You know, you don't have the kind of social capital or connections um, that that people who can kind of make their way up have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the South... Um, and North Carolina does not spend a whole lot of money on government programs um, kind of to help people in poverty. Um, you know, you see um, some of those, some some Southern states as being the ones that kind of try to cut back um, aid to um, mothers with dependent children or, mm. um, you know, just job training programs. Um, you know, North Carolina, for instance, eliminated its, its state earned income tax credit in 2014 and cut unemployment benefits to um, 14 weeks maximum, which is really, really low. So I think you see people living in Charlotte and North Carolina and many places in the South who are kind of maybe on the brink of of making it um, mm-hmm. and maybe need that extra push. Um, places in the South do not give them that that extra hand up. And I think for a lot of people, um, that extra hand can can make a pretty big difference. So it seems to be like it's the people that need help the most. Like you said, they need the push. But then what what's going on? Is it just like the top level people are assholes? Like what's happening? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think it's, you know, voters vote in people who who are going to carry out the policies that they support. And a lot of a lot of voters support these kind of very tough, tough policies that, um, you know, make it harder for for people to make their way up. I mean, the, the other thing is, is the link between race I was about to say. Yeah. So so I've written a couple stories about how um, states that have a larger share of minorities and particularly African-Americans also have some of the most stringent laws about safety net policies. For example, mm. you know, Mississippi has a pretty high share of African-Americans and you saw Mississippi cut welfare, uh, I think, the most in the country. Whereas a place like Oregon, mm. uh, that's very white, people are more willing to kind of support policies uh, that fund the safety net because they think, well, it's people like me who are getting that money, not, you know, kind of the other. Jeez. Okay. Well, okay. So, so that, that is sort of one of the big reasons that it's so hard to get ahead in the South is because the people, it's just like segregated. I mean, it's segregated. There's concentrated poverty and you have less generous policies that help help poor people get ahead. But what about white what like low income white people? Is there less? There are fewer, but there's also less segregation. Like you'll see even middle income African American people live in low income neighborhoods and so they don't have access to the same opportunity. Whereas low income white people, you know, will will sometimes live near middle class or or um you know, higher income white people. And so their children can kind of have, have more opportunities. So, you know, part of this is, is also segregation and segregation is, is obviously a persistent problem in the South that also makes it harder to get ahead. Yeah. That was my experience in Florida. I just, I just realized when you were talking that like we didn't have a lot of money, but we lived near people who did versus other friends of mine. I had never put that into words. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's something you see playing out across the country, but I think particularly in the South, it's especially accented, I guess. That's so crazy. So, okay, so welfare was viewed favorably before Black people were allowed to get it, and then things changed. Can you tell me about that switch? 
Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about like the war on poverty, which uh, Lyndon Johnson launched in 1964, it's kind of interesting because he he chose to go to a um, white Appalachian coal miner, you know, hit, visit his family, and and you know they they were on the cover of Time magazine, kind of, you know, this is the face of poverty, and I think you know Johnson and and other people at the time really emphasized kind of we have to help these white rural poor. That's today too. Yeah, no, I think so. But I think, you know, at the time, he kind of, to jumpstart this huge mm-hmm. anti-poverty campaign, he felt like we had to talk about white poverty. And, you know, I don't think you see a whole lot of anti-poverty campaigns now. I mean, look at look at the Trump administration, who's trying to impose work limits on just about every safety net program there is. But, you know, if, if you look, the Urban Institute actually did a really interesting analysis um, that found that Vermont gave um, TANF, which is essentially modern day welfare, to 78 out of 100, every 100 families in poverty. And by contrast, Louisiana, which has a high share of African-Americans, gives benefits to four families out of every 100 living in poverty. So you see that kind of discrepancy still still today. In my experience, people in the South have this view of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like we work hard. Like we, that's just the way the cookie crumbles, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I think in the South, I think people, you know, consciously or not think of people who receive help from government programs is kind of like, quote, lazy or, you know, they're not not working hard enough. Uh, And I think part of that is because they feel like those people don't look like them and, you know, are very different for them. Whereas in states like Vermont and Oregon, I think there's more... I don't know, willingness to give to those type of people or help those type of people because there's an idea that they look kind of like like us. Yeah. Yeah, it's like more more of like the the white student collecting unemployment versus the idea of like a black family getting welfare. Sort of, right? Yeah, and it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I went to Oregon and did did a story about kind of this, these discrepancies, and I asked the unemployment office to put me in touch with some people who had who had received their benefits, and it was all white people. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. very interesting to see how different it was from a place like Mississippi. If you go to unemployment office, it's it's you know not very white. Is it just because of the the history of the South, like dating all the way back to the Civil War? I mean, I think you you had kind of, you know, part of the economic philosophy in the South is that, you know, we want cheap labor, cheap land and low taxes. You know, we just want kind of business to run as usual and, and, and kind of not put a lot of regulations on business and, and people can kind of figure it out themselves. It's kind of been a very hands off philosophy. And I think it's always been that way you know, back to back to slavery, mm-hmm. um, kind of let us do what we want and we're going to make the region prosperous and, and everyone else will benefit. You know, whereas I think in other places, there's been a lot more interest in kind of what can the government do? What can the community do to kind of weigh in and help the people that need it the most? Yeah. I mean, so how do you think things could could change? Like what did you in your reporting? What have you what do you have you seen could maybe help? Well, it's interesting because you see a lot of cities in the South, like Atlanta, for instance, are getting much more diverse, um, mm. having a lot of immigrants from you know Latin America and a lot of African Americans moving moving there, and so I think you would see some cities in the South try to pass some more progressive labor legislation. You're seeing that across the country that cities are kind of becoming the forefront of of labor legislation and kind of helping Mm -hmm. um, poor people move up, you know, so you could see maybe a city like Atlanta or Charlotte try to pass some sort of legislation or launch some sort of policy to help help poor people. I think you're not going to see that in in rural areas um, in the South um, anytime soon. So, you know, you could have this kind of situation where maybe some parts of the South, especially the big diverse cities are getting getting better for for poor people and you know maybe maybe people are going to want to move to those cities because mm-hmm. there's there's more opportunities there but you know whether that whether that will help them because of the issues that we've talked about with segregation and etc uh remains to be seen so whether you're in the south or in a rural area or in a wealthy urban city in the north Moving up in life is a narrative that we're told we should want. And if that's our goal, we often set our sights on this notion of becoming middle class. 
It's something we're told is comfortable with a house in the suburbs and a yard and a car and family vacations. Middle class. You're working, but you're not stressed about making enough money to get by. Well, I have bad news for you. That narrative is also a myth. That's right. The middle class is a myth. And we'll talk about that after another, I'm sure, tonally appropriate ad break. Welcome back to Economic Mythbusters. I mean, to bad with money. To learn more about the lie that is the cushy middle class, I talked to Alyssa Court. Alyssa is the executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of a new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. You should get that book. That's so, seems so relevant right now and at all times, but especially right now. Alyssa got interested in how families get by in this country when she and her husband were about to have a child and they realized they couldn't really afford to. You know, we had savings and uh, we had been at a, we, we had kid, a kid older, so we were at a different point in our career. But I was just thinking, you know, what about all these other journalists that are losing their jobs? And then I went from there and I was thinking about the adjunct professors I knew who were making $4,000 a class and the the lawyers who are now like being laid off or working as paralegals and not or being unemployed. And I was like, okay, what ha, what's happening with them? It's got to be a lot worse. You created a new name for the middle class, the middle precariat. Yeah. What does that mean? And, and how does that sort of encapsulate what's going on with America's middle class right now? Well, first of all, the, the precariat was coined by a guy named Guy Standing, which is a per Okay. Awesome name. I almost feel like it's got to be a pseudonym. Guy standing. Anyway. Guy standing. Guy standing. Um, 2011, and uh, he meant it to describe the precarious proletariat. So you don't have to be a Marxist to recognize that the working class is really precarious right now, right? They work mm-hmm. gig jobs or, you know, um, on certain hours, uh, from job to job, no pensions. Okay. Then I looked around and I saw the middle class looked a lot like that precarious working class, you know, also doing gig jobs, contract work, no pension, no retirement, um, could be fired on a, on a whim. Um, and, you know, very a lot like a lot less uh, certainty about the future or having what we used to think of as a career, right, which was like an mm-hmm. arc, a steady arc where your life you know, improves and your work improves and then eventually you retire with your grandchildren or whatever, you know, that just wasn't happening for a lot of the people I knew. So it's a middle class ideal that that's no longer accessible to a lot of Americans. What what is that ideal? And and what are people not able to afford these days? That's like part of that ideal. Well, you know, the ideal could include something as simple as just owning your house, right? Um, Or, as I said, you know, having money to retire on. Healthcare, you know, I was like, this is really basic stuff. But it could also be, you know, um, sometimes it's it's having a car. It's being able to do what you love, which is something I I write about in the book, how hard that is now. Um, That was something that people of my generation in the 80s were said, do what you love, follow your dreams. And that led, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a middle class fantasy in some ways. Like that doesn't, you know, that's a middle class dream you you can't always accomplish. Good schools, sending your kids to good schools. These are not esoteric desires, but they're really hard for people to actualize. You also talk to people in the upper middle class that are struggling. um, And you write about how one's income as it compares to those around you, like how it affects people. Can you explain a little bit about geography and the wealth of one's particular city plays into this? Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, there's been there's a study by a a professor called Michael Daly that showed that social position rather than your material conditions, like the things that you have around you, explains your health and your psychological well-being. So in other what do you mean? In other words, that's, you know, you'd be better off being the top of the bottom than the bottom of the top. And that that falls flies against what we think, right? Oh, you want to live in a nice neighborhood. You want to give the appearance of having a higher higher social status. But when you are earning a lot less or even somewhat less than your neighbors, that can have a really negative effect on your health according to these studies. Wow. Meanwhile, high standing has actual health benefits, which is kind of 
horrible. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, I, I, you know, I say, right, that we're living in a dystopia, you know. Mm-hmm. Wait, what do you mean? Like, what kind of benefits? Not just, like, being able to afford a doctor, but, like... Yeah, it has psychological physical and or... physical benefits to be, to have higher standing. There, I, there was a bunch of different studies around that. And so, again, it's better to be at the top of the bottom economically or the top of the middle rather than the bottom of the top. Because you can kind of see what what you're not getting. Yeah, you're, like, peering over... Uh, you know, oh my God, drag the hedges of the you know your privileged neighbors, oh, and you're seeing their no. schools, and you're seeing their you know. So that's the the thing, and and you're mm-hmm. also, I mean, you're probably working harder and longer with less stability than your neighbor. So there's other things that are real. It's not just like oh, I want that outfit no, of my sure. neighbor. So in the book, you say that work and class identity are games we can't win anymore. So this this episode is about social mobility in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also kind of uh, a middle class ideal and dream. So how do, how do you think that we view social mobility in the U.S. today? And like, how do all these things that you were writing about affect how we view social mobility right now? Well, there's a lot less mobility than there used to be. So that's another another right. thing. And I think people now realize that, which is something that people didn't used to know. Like everybody thought they were middle class. That was the cliche about America, right? Like in England, everyone's like super aware of class. And in America, everyone's like, I'm middle class. In the book, you're talking about like television and like media's effect on that and like the rise of 1% television. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can we, yeah, so can we talk about that? Because I think a lot of that is what contributed to my idea of like what it's supposed to look like. You know, the 1%, what I call 1% TV, it's like all these shows, like uh, Billions, Empire, mm. um, course, like Downton Abbey, that are really kind of on the side of the very rich and in a different way than they were in the time of Dallas or Dynasty when it was this kind of fairy tale and the wealthy people, the super rich people like J.R. from Dallas was just disgusting, rich, out of reach. This is a kind of 1% aspiration where you're watching and you're like, oh, I want to be this hedge fund guy. You know, he's even if they're a bad guy. You still want to be. Yeah. Them. Well, they're sort of made to be complicated in this way that's, I feel like, yeah. um, plays with our desire. Goals. Oh, like Don Draper's goals. Yeah. Yeah. Know, no, like no, that, no. Even though he's horrible. No, exactly. And that they're, and it sort yeah. of fits into this whole idea of this morally complex television universe that's filled with antiheroes that are dark, who also happen to be, you know, wealthy with an amazing, like, decor. And I mean, even I remember as a kid, it was like the OC or Gossip Girl or, you know what I mean? These Mm -hmm. like very, very, even the teen television. I mean, obviously people talk about Sex and the City and Friends, but like, I mean, even like teen television was like super rich kids. Yeah. And their problems. Yeah. And they, as I say, these are like really immersive environments and they're like these flattering tales of the 1%. And and then there's like a smaller antidote, which I call in- inequality entertainment. That's like m- much less popular, but it's like you know, Mr. Robar, shameless, yeah, Breaking or... Bad. You know, like it's sort of like in Breaking Bad. It's but even Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad is both was aspirational because he it's, wants to it's get both. Rid, you know what Breaking I mean? Bad is both, and so yeah. Ozark, which I actually really loved. Um, yeah. but um. And those shows kind of try to do both of those things at once. Yeah. If you watch these shows, and I think it fits in generally to the ways that people like to present themselves and when they're, you know, representing themselves and creating their own media on social media, right? Like people, I call them wealthies, not selfies. You know, these pictures that people put on Facebook or Twitter on their vacations and looking really sun dappled mm. in their apartments and their watches and their jewelry. Yeah, like rich kids and, of Instagram yeah. or whatever. Yep. And uh, there's an interesting study. It was called, I think, in equilogram. And in equilogram. No, seriously. And <laughs> no, I love it. They measured. The people who posted images of, you know, where they took fo- where they posted their images from and then where they actually lived. And there was this huge discrepancy. So they'd be the people would be posting images of themselves, you know, in front of um, Rockefeller Center and they'd be living like in deep Queens. And so that was the I mean, whatever, that's just one example. But that's the that was the thing the study found that pe- that's people actually try to represent themselves as more wealthy than they are on social and it fits into the kind of what they're watching right so yeah 
But you have to have started from the bottom. Now you're here. Mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you were born rich, fuck you. But if you like started nowhere and then now you show off everything, everyone's like, we love it. Yeah, no. Because it's aspirational. It's it's economic mobility. It's moving up. It's like, you know, it's it's like I want to be I want to become that someday. Yeah. Somebody who, uh, who interviewed me who was in advertising was just pointing out that some of the things about Squeezed, it's a, it's a it's a book a little bit about branding. Mm. That's the hidden theme, which I hadn't even seen. But we're mislabeling ourselves middle class sometimes, right? Oh, and that it's like and putting that stress on ourselves when we're not actually yeah, middle class. exactly. Or we're or we're you know um, punishing ourselves, blaming ourselves when it's when we don't we're not seeing the truth. It's like we've bought in in some ways we've bought mm-hmm. into some some of these ad advertising mythos or these television show mythos, mm-hmm. and they've seeped into our sense of ourselves and that like. I guess my public service announcement is (laughs) let's tear the veil, right? We can connect to one another around our own fragility. And that's that's Mm -hmm. something I really want to get out there. You know, the thing I saw in a lot of the families and the especially the mothers I spoke to was they blame themselves. And they're very kind of like, why don't I figure this out? Why can't I get a steady job? Why can't I pay for daycare? Why can't I be happy? Like happiness becomes its own punishment, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just was like, stop blaming yourself. Start seeing this as a system problem and just just take it out of the personal. And I feel like yeah. it, it sounds like, yeah, that's depressing on one level. But on another level, if we can stop blaming ourselves and stop punishing ourselves, that's actually a weird self-help message that I could get behind, you know. So by now you're wondering, where does this story end? It sounds pretty dire and the problems feel insurmountable. It feels like we're careening towards a very unhappy ending. But folks, I have news for you. There's a dream team of poverty researchers who assembled to try to figure out how to write a better ending. And we'll hear from one of these Avengers after the break. We're back. And get ready for me to just fangirl all over the place on this person. I'm joined by Nisha Patel, who I interviewed last week, a week, a couple weeks ago. Nisha is a fellow at the Urban Institute and the executive director of the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty. And folks, this partnership is like the Met Gala of brilliant, incredible people of poverty research. I literally lose my mind. So the the partnership is really, it's a, a, a collection of 24 experts and leading voices on poverty in the United States. And we were set up two years ago by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has funded our work. And um, I'm based at the Urban Institute and have a team there. And the task we were given was really sort of one homework assignment over two years, answer the question, what would it take to dramatically increase mobility from poverty? It's just like the Avengers. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like it's the it's it's like the Justice League of of, of poverty fighters. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's a super cool group, and I feel really privileged to um, to have had this opportunity to work with all of them. And one thing that I often like to emphasize is because it's not usual enough, the group is majority people of color, which is one wow. of the reasons I said yes to this. You know, if you look at we're not certainly not the first group to look at this issue, but I think probably one of the most diverse groups to take on a task like this and to do it in a, I think, a different way than other commissions that have come before. How would you describe mobility from from poverty? Like, how are we doing right now? Because this episode is kind of about how sort of impossible that seems right now in the U.S. Yeah, we're, we're not doing so great. Um, yeah, well. You know, hence, <laughs> hence taking on this task. And yeah, as we first kind of uh, came together as a group, you know, we, we, we sort of said, okay, what would it take to dramatically increase mobility from poverty? Well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean right. by mobility from poverty? And we first started looking at it, you know, in the traditional ways we often do in this country and in this field, which is what your podcast is about, money, right? Like mm-hmm. people don't have enough money and therefore they're defined as being in poverty. And so we said, so, okay, so then what would success look like? And pretty quickly – we started to, and I give our chair, David, a lot of credit for, for pushing the group to say, you know, we have the luxury, it, and really the luxury of having two years, and 
that the freedom to think really boldly about this. And so we could have said, well, let's use um, you know a federal definition of poverty, the po- federal poverty line, which is just over twenty four thousand dollars for a family of four, and we could come mm-hmm. up with some ideas that would help people help families move above that line, and then we could maybe you know we pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, our job is done. But if you stop mm-hmm. and think about that. First of all, trying to survive a family of four and $24,000, clearly, if you make a little above that, you're still going to continue to struggle. And John Powell, one of our, our partnership members at our very first conversation, said something that really resonated with the group as we were talking about success. And he said, here's the thing about poverty. It's not just about a lack of money. It's also about a lack of power. Yeah. And that, wow. Yeah. Yes. And yes. that made everyone in the room stop and think. And so we said, okay, economic success is, is super important and we have to keep pushing on that. We have to have ways for people to increase their income, increase their wealth. But second and equally important is this notion of power and autonomy, which really speaks to having agency over your own life and a say about what happens in the trajectory of your life and in your community. And certainly money plays into that, but it's more than that. So this, this sense of agency. And then third and equally important as we got into the conversation, what emerged and what was really interesting, and I mentioned we have people from different political points of view. So Arthur Brooks, um, who heads up the American Enterprise Institute, is, is part of the group, and he comes from a much more conservative perspective. And he he started talking about this concept of often for people in poverty in the U.S., they are not seen as having dignity or they're not provided any dignity or seen mm-hmm. as ha- you know being needed. And then John Powell, who I mentioned, right, he's at UC Berkeley, comes from a much more progressive point of view. He's an expert on structural racism. He talks about a a very similar concept, you know, this notion of how we view people who we see as not like us. And often Mm -hmm. poverty in the U.S. is so stigmatizing. And so we often other, using that as a verb, right, we other people who are living Mm -hmm. in poverty. And John said, so, but, and so we need to change that. But the opposite of othering is not seeming. We don't all need to be the same. It's belonging. And it's belonging in community and being valued in community. And so we pretty quickly realized, hmm, here are these two people from very different political points of view, but they're actually talking about the same concept. It's some, we, being valued in community. And so some academics and sociologists might talk about this as social inclusion or social capital, you know, your social networks. And so mm-hmm. we said, okay, mobility from poverty has to embody all three of these principles. Economic success, yes, you have to have enough money, income and wealth. But you also need agency and you also need to belong. Yeah, I, I think a lot about like there's a, a book that I read called $2 a Day. Um, yes, and, and actually was... Kathy Eden, one of the authors of that book, is part of the partnership. Oh my God, I she's like my... Taylor Swift, like I have to meet her. Um, but so we can, she, we'll make that happen. Oh my God, I'm sweating. Um, she, she. So they were talking about in that, like the ways that time and like waiting in line and being treated sort of like cattle, essentially, basically makes them feel like what's the point of even moving up? And like a lot of them are just like, you know, a lot of these people are just like they try, but then they get shut down. So then they just cry, and then they just go, "Well, I shouldn't try." And I think it's like, yeah, this sort of thing of viewing them as less than human or viewing. And you know what? I also think a lot of that comes from fear for people going, oh, well, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Like it won't happen Mm. to me. Mm -hmm. But like it's almost it's similar to what my friend, my friend Carrie Wade, who's a, a disability activist. She said it's interesting the way people view disability because disability is the only minority group that you can join at any time. And I feel that about poverty, too, like the judgment and the like, whatever. But that is a group that anyone can join at any time. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I think you're you're correct that most of us don't like to think about that. But there's actually analysis that Mark Rank, who's actually was one of my professors in grad school 20 years ago at at WashU in St. Louis, has done on your chances of, of falling into poverty. And it's the vast majority of us. Right. But we pretend like that's not true and that these like homeless people that we see or people on welfare or people in that are among our community are just not not like us, different. That's something, they did right. something bad. They did something wrong that I won't do. That's absolutely right. And I think one of the big challenges is and we can if we want to talk about solutions, get into this, that we is that we need to change the narrative around poverty uh-huh. because there's so much stigma and isolation, but there's also invisibility. Like what does it mean to live in poverty? And if you think about you know, one of the challenges is people, you know, we have sort of these class divides, but there are people that any one of us are probably interacting with 
every day who are struggling. And of course, it's, it's not talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting, this idea of who moves upward. There was like some research that I've done where it says that college educated middle class black families are likely to push their kids to go to college and take out more loans to pay for them because they it's like a mobility thing. It's like we need you to we know that you're going to need this degree to even get looked at the same way as white candidates later on in your job search. Um, and so I like interviewed some some families about that because I had seen that statistic. And it's like it's like this thing of of trying to get out of, you know, your one horse town or whatever, like where you grew up. But some people it's like you you just can't. I don't know. And there's like this whole narrative of like you got to be a good singer or play basketball or mm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To like get out. I definitely felt that in Florida. It was like everyone was trying to get out of Florida and it was like you had to be exceptional. It's, it's so interesting that you bring up that example because we one of the other areas we spent a bunch of time looking at was this idea of so what are the narratives around poverty mm-hmm. that are actually holding us back from making progress that we need to change? And the one you just described, we had sort of this design strategy lab where we had a bunch of creative folks come together to say, well, what, what would some tactics look like? And they, uh, the, they brought up the exact narrative you're talking about, which they talked about as this shooting star narrative, right? So we like mm-hmm. to point to as Americans, we like these kind of rags to riches stories to say, hey, look at Gabby. Like she grew up in this low-income situation and now she's this famous actress in Hollywood. Or mm-hmm. look at this kid who grew up in a, a low-income neighborhood and now he plays in the NBA and he's making all kinds of money. And we love and, that. And that. We love that, right? And it seems positive. But the other side of those stories is like, well, if Gabby can make it, why can't you? What's wrong with you? If this kid could make it, why can't mm-hmm. you? And the problem with that narrative, it, it ignores all of the structural issues that we've just talked about in the labor market, in terms of how much zip code matters, in terms of how much racial and gender discrimination matter. It feels very insurmountable. But the partnership kind of in the report was like saying that it's not insurmountable and that I just it's I can just feel people like listening to this being like, yeah, but how, how do I do this? So, yeah, what are some of the strategies, you know, yeah. that yeah. you'll be able to tackle the problem? Yeah. You know, what was interesting is that many of the people in this group, I mean, I've been doing this work for 20 plus years, but there are people in the group who've been doing it for 40 years you know, in yeah. this field, trying to get traction. And I would say virtually everyone in the group came away much more optimistic, which is really interesting given just kind of the political context that we're living in. And what we ended up putting forward is five big strategies that we think are mutually reinforcing. And we actually didn't kind of start with these and then try to fill in a framework. We actually let all a bunch of different ideas bubble up from the group. And so we have like 13 different idea proposals that, you know, underneath those are are, um, many more ideas. But then we said, how do these fit together? And we said, it's really five things. It's about narrative, jobs, place, people, and data. So a narrative, we've talked about that a bit already. How do we change this narrative around poverty? And, you know, narratives are – and I think, you know, work like the work you do, Gabby, and that journalists do, I think can be really powerful in kind of re-educating people. But narratives are the stories that we all tell ourselves to make sense of the world, and they're deeply ingrained. And so it's really different than – the way we typically fight poverty is through policies and through designing programs to, to help people, you know, provide – and that's good. We need to do that. But if we can shift the narrative, narratives are how we decide what we're going to support and what we're going to invest in. So that's number one. Uh And it's about changing mindset and culture. And it's long term and and honestly, probably the most important and the hardest to do. It seems impossible. People are so ingrained in that. Like, and I don't I don't like like where did that I mean, I know where it came from. It came from, you know, years and years of like movies and TV. Yeah. Well, and I think that I think part of what we conclude is that movies and TV are actually part of the answer. They're not the whole answer. But it's almost like a 360 environment that has to shift. And we we actually tried to look at other examples where the narrative has changed in the U.S. And actually one recent example we looked at um, was marriage equality, which a lot of people are looking to, right, as a – who are working on social change issues. Like what can we learn from that experience? And it doesn't, you know, kind of correlate directly to trying to change narratives on on poverty, but there are probably some important lessons to be learned, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know – now, it, it mattered a lot that there were people with significant resources invested in that movement. 
And I think, I mean, part of my analysis is that it mattered a lot that LGBTQ identity cu- cuts across class lines, right? Mm-hmm. It cuts across religious lines. It cuts across geographic lines. And, you know, my sense is part of that was people, people whose hearts and minds shifted was recognizing perhaps, okay, these people that I thought were so different from me are actually just like me in so many ways. They belong. They're part of part of my community. Mm-hmm. And could something like, like that be done around poverty? Going back to our original conversation, right, that when we were talking about how poverty is viewed. We also looked at things like um, tobacco and smoking cessation. Now, that's kind of a behavior change, so it's a little bit different, but it also involves mindset changes, right, about how smoking was sort of seen as cool. And then – and maybe some people still see it that way, but there was a <laughs> shift, uh, you know, a very intentional shift um, to ca- trying to change people's behavior. And that took so long, didn't it? That took so many ad campaigns and, like, just a lot of money. And you were right. I mean, marriage equality had a lot of, like, big donors and funders. And also, speaking as a queer person, I think, like, there's this, for better or worse, narrative of, like, born this way. Mm. And I don't – and I think people think poverty is a failing. Do you know what I mean? So how do we fix that? Yeah. Well, and so that's, and, and you know, we we sort of said this has to happen, but we certainly don't don't have all the answers. This is right. something that I think is, and I think it's going to require some bold, long-term investment to figure out how mm-hmm. do we change mindsets on this and what are new narratives um, and also common narratives. Because I think often when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to change people point, people's points of view, well, whose points of view are you trying to change? Mm-hmm. If you kind of get, if you end up preaching to the choir and it feels really good, that mm-hmm. that's nice, but you haven't shifted shifted a narrative and a common narrative that people on the left, on the right, in urban, in rural areas, can all sort of come together around. And that's it's it's going to take time. So, whose responsibility is it? Is would it be like the government or nonprofit? Yeah, you know, interesting. I think on, on each of these ideas, as we put forward the papers, and, and for folks that are interested, there's sort of a quick two-pager on each of the ideas. We we explicitly tried to outline what's the role for philanthropy and what's the role for government. And this is one where I think it's really a role for philanthropy and private investment because it's, it's going to take bold, creative kinds of work. Now, maybe over time, there can be a role for government. If you think about, you know, there are other public ad campaigns that do try to change people's behavior, right? I'm a Gen Xer. And so every, I know your, your audience is probably uh, not so old, but there's, there's this campaign that we all remember as soon as I say it, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. And it yep. was a, an egg. Yep. And maybe, maybe it's familiar to you too, right? And it was really sticky and it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, well, mm-hmm. it worked that people remembered it. I don't know if it actually caused anybody not to use drugs, but yeah, but it was definitely "quote unquote" viral. Yeah, are you optimistic? Like, what ideally would would move the needle the most? Do you think? I think that if we could, and again, this is long term. If we could change the narrative, I think it would then open up opportunities to move ideas on access to good jobs and on place based strategies and on transforming human services and data use even further because we'd have more public support for those ideas, which would hope would result in both more public and private investment and more resources for the people on the ground who are actually implementing these policies and programs. So yes, changing our nation's narrative on poverty will not be easy or quick. We need to reconsider the characters, dramatically change the structure, and rethink the language. And to do that, it's going to take coordination from the government, private companies, nonprofits, media, literally all of us in the country. But I think it's important enough that we at least try. The idea that we can expect a better life for our kids or our friends' kids, if we're not so inclined to reproduce, is a story that's worth exploring and working to make it one that comes true, especially right now for immigrants, especially for me in the wake of losing Maymay, who was an immigrant who all she wanted was a better life. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, oh no, you can't cry during the credits. Please rate and review us in iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who have boots with straps. Do those exist anymore? I I think they, they do. Where do they think the straps go? On the side? I don't know about anything. 
We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Sam Dingman, and Cameron Drews. We're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I promise I won't cry next week. I can't promise that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.